Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about LGBTQ microaggressions in dementia care is Phil Harper. Phil is currently a sessional lecturer in dementia care at the University of Worcester and public health tutor at Coventry University Group. Phil is also a doctoral candidate at Manchester Metropolitan University, exploring care staff's understanding of the needs of an LGBTQ person living with dementia. He has worked in dementia care for seven years, previously in hospitals, charitable organizations, and care homes. Phil has been involved in the development of dementia training for hospitals and care homes, and is most recently a LGBTQ consultant for Ashwell Care Services, a home care-based company. Thank you for being here today, Phil. How are you? Um, you're very welcome. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. How are you? So, Phil, let's talk about LGBTQ microaggressions in dementia care. Again, thank you. So, um, so yeah, so I'm going to just give a brief introduction into LGBTQ um, microaggressions in dementia care um, and just give you an idea of maybe some things, what we can, how we can overcome them. So who am I? Um, as Jason said, um, I'm a public health lecturer at Coventry University Group. I'm also an associate lecturer in dementia care at the University of Worcester. Um, I'm currently studying my doctorate. Um, at Manchester Metropolitan University and I'm looking at care staff's understanding of the needs of an LGBTQ plus person living with dementia. So I'm kind of just going to be exploring where are, we, where are we at. So when I've started talking to care staff and when I've been looking at the literature, so I've been doing loads of planning, I've done um, concept analysis, I've done um, literature reviews on LGBT and dementia, and understanding there's not much research out there at the moment but the little research that there is basically says that it's quite often subtle forms of discrimination that we see now we, we've kind of moved past seeing really blatant homophobic and transphobic behavior and biphobic behavior whereas now it's just lack of understanding particularly here in the UK um, so that's then when I've started to look at this subtle and I've kind of gone into a bit more depth than you know, the research has on the subtle forms and looking at what we call microaggressions and the way that power from the caregiver is often given or is often um, evident through subtleties in language, for example. Um, so, yeah, so apart from my professional doctorate, as I said, I conducted a small-scale concept analysis which I explored um, LGBTQ microaggression and dementia care and it just helped me to really understand this concept a bit further and a lot of that what I got from that um, concept analysis is in this presentation so just to give a bit of context so this is very UK based but um, here in the UK we've got 1.2 million older gay and lesbian people in the UK if we start to do some maths and we start to apply this to how many people living with dementia we think there could be, um, it comes out that there could be 85,714. Um, when we think that that is just gay and lesbian people, we're not talking about bi people, we're not talking about transgender, which is part of the acronym. We're not talking about people who maybe don't conform to labels. So actually it's probably an even bigger number than that but that just shows that actually for a country the size of the UK that's a fairly large number so this is something that we actually need to really start to look at and it's going to become even more important as time goes on right. um, so what is a microaggression so according to Nadal and his team of researchers they um, created 
um, this definition of what microaggressions are, particularly based in healthcare. And what they said microaggressions are is terminology that discriminates against an LGBTQ plus person, the enforcement of heterosexual norms, disregarding LGBTQ people's individual experiences, and then not accepting that an LGBTQ plus person has specific needs. So they are the four things, and what we're going to do is we're going to go through these four things and start to give some examples and really, so we do understand what they are. So when we think about terminology that discriminates, so the biggest one is probably misgendering an individual. So if somebody's transgender or gender non-conforming or non-binary, by a thought, by asserting our views on the binary and calling somebody male and female if they don't identify as that can be discriminatory but also using the wrong pronouns if somebody does is on the binary but is maybe transgender and you just make that mistake now this is different from making a mistake this is continued use of misgendering so if um if you make a mistake as will come on later you just need to apologize and move on. But if you're continuing to do that, you are committing, if anything, that's probably moving even further from microaggressions actually into more blatant discriminatory behavior. But it's the repeated misgendering that we quite often see. Um, also labeling. So, oh, that's the gay resident or that's the queer one, um, which we sometimes do see. And sometimes people don't necessarily mean it negatively. But it's asserting labels to people. Not everybody identifies with the label that you assign. So I, for example, I am non-binary. I then don't identify as gay. I identify as queer because my view of gender means that I'm, I don't see myself as male. And being gay is male attracted to male. So you need to think about how complicated sexuality and gender is and the interplay to just make sure that you're not asserting your beliefs and your terms onto somebody else so just being a bit more vague really about it generally helps here and um, we've got the enforcement of heterosexual norms so it's something called heteronormativity which is where society champions heterosexuality to be really the only option and um, we see this quite often on tv adverts where it's only heterosexual couples and then that kind of shows us the fact that maybe us queer folk don't exist because we're not being represented right. um, and we don't always fit into what something's being sold as in a care environment a really good example is that the fact that if you somebody's admitted let's say a male is admitted and you ask oh have you got a wife straight away automatically and i've fallen into that trap of doing it but that is a microaggression and it's heteronormativity because you are assuming that that person is heterosexual. Now, if somebody's a bit more um, vulnerable, it's quite hard to actually break that and actually challenge it with somebody who's got some power over you, like a caregiver. That sometimes causes people to go back into the closet. Right. Things like um, imagery. So if you've got an activity professional, um, when you and you've put together a poster for Valentine's Day, for example, you might have a heterosexual couple on it. And I've got a quote that we come up to soon, but that can be really not very um, accepting if you're not heterosexual. And maybe we can think of maybe more um, gender neutral ideas, just maybe two hands holding each other or just love hearts, something like that. Then that's not excluding people. Um, 
we've got assumptions about how somebody should dress or present themselves so for example there are some people who are non-binary that are very androgynous and actually not assuming that how somebody should look and putting your beliefs onto somebody basically particularly when somebody needs that help to dress and then not recognizing same-sex partners is also an issue particularly in hospitals quite often hear that somebody's just seen as a friend and not actually the loved one which can have a negative impact and doesn't make it welcoming then for the partner to actually visit either um and then the next um definition or category is disregarding lgbtq plus people's individual experiences so we quite often hear and this is more from the doctor's side of things that i do hear that people think that they know best over the person who they're actually treating so i've heard a lot that doctors take trans people off hormone treatment due to polypharmacy that they're like oh well they've got dementia they're quite unwell they don't need this because then they've got too much medication whereas actually that's not valuing that person and what's maybe important to that person um, it's kind of also an over-reliance on the medical model that we're not thinking of that person's social needs either. Um, we've also got respecting the wants of an individual. I put here, ask queer folk love a flag. And if you've seen the LGBT community, we've got a flag for pretty much everything. And what you've got to think is sometimes those flags are really important to us. So if we're in a nursing home or care home, we might want to have our flag up on the wall, which our heterosexual peers might not have the same type of thing. So understanding that actually we hold things a bit differently or hold things as important definitely to heterosexual people possibly. Um, next, we're going on to accepting that LGBTQ people have specific needs. So a bit like what we've said before, sometimes health professionals disregard um, LGBTQ people's needs. And this is all particularly evident when somebody's got dementia and maybe their voice isn't heard as much and it's disregarded a lot more people living with dementia are quite often disregarded as confused unable to communicate which quite often is wrong but unfortunately that takes that makes somebody a bit more vulnerable to all of these things um we've got also appreciating that an lgbtq plus person quite often has more difficulties so in the uk it was in 1967 that homosexuality was decriminalized but it wasn't probably till about the 90s or 2000s that it is really starting to be accepted as being okay so what we've got to think about is older people might particularly with dementia might drop back to a previous time where being the authentic self said maybe get a beating they would maybe go into um prison have really negative societal beliefs so we've got to sometimes think that actually this person needs a little bit more help um also when we think about memory lanes um i see a lot of um care homes nursing homes um particularly dementia specialist ones that have a memory lane a reminiscent corridor that has all previous memories and brings back memories as you walk down it now these are quite often memory lanes main corridor up to the dining room for example somebody who's lgbtq might that might be an awful experience walking down there bringing back really traumatic beliefs or experiences now i'm not saying we shouldn't have these reminiscent areas but maybe not the main corridor that everybody has to walk down that's not very person-centered 
maybe have a corner that everybody doesn't have to go past to have that area because it is reminiscence is fantastic it is a brilliant tool but not for everybody right and um, accepting that people might have a family of choice and their biological family might not be a preferred next of kin because sometimes people are estranged from family particularly if they're lgbt plus and right. um, when we think about capacity fluctuating fluctuating we need to make sure that the people who are really important somebody are making the decisions because i've heard again with the doctors about taking people off for hormone treatment an extra kin who may be a daughter who's become estranged will say yes please take her off and actually that's not taking that person's best interest so we need to start thinking about care plans what we have over a lasting power of attorney things like that where we can assign that people look after us when we need it and it might not be biological family um, and then we need safe spaces so quite often if something's happened or somebody feels intimidated we need to have a space that is safe for um, people from the LGBT community when you think about us queer folk we don't always feel comfortable in heterosexual spaces that's why we have LGBT venues like gay bars stuff like that because that is then when we feel most comfortable and that's why we generally have prize because we need it to feel safe be authentic self quite often and that doesn't change when you're older and in a care facility so we've kind of identified what some of these microaggressions are so what are the impact now kitwood if people have studied dementia you might have come across kitwood before um he's one of our professors that we had over here in the uk in, at bradford university and he's done a lot of seminal work in person-centered dementia care. Um, he explores quite often something we call um, malignant social psychology. And he talks against labeling individuals. So when we go back to some of these labels that have maybe happened, um, this can be that negative issues that um, come from being assigned a label that you don't identify as and that has a really negative impact on you because it takes away your personhood and your feeling of who you are. Um, somebody called Dawn Brooker, who's at the University of Worcester, what has developed his work a lot more and now talks about the VIPS models. It's all about valuing the person, the individual's personal perspective um, and knowing that somebody's an individual and their supportive um, environment. And when you think about all the things we've been speaking about, it's all about these things, about valuing that that person is an individual, they're different from everybody else, trying to take their perspective and trying to make an environment as supportive as we can. Um, when we think about heteronormativity and environments, we need to think about how these environments can be supportive. And this can be physical environment, but it can also be an environment that healthcare professionals and people make. Um, and we need to ensure that somebody doesn't feel banished. So when you think if you don't feel like you fit in somewhere, you feel you do feel banished, you feel like an outsider. And if something's set up to not include you, like a heteronormative environment, and if you are not heterosexual or cisgendered, you do not feel comfortable there, so you feel banished. And that takes away your feeling of personhood, and it can make you feel really lonely as a person. So here, so Foucault, who's a sociologist in France, speaks a lot about how we self-govern 
ourselves. And this is really important because we've got something called internalized homophobia and transphobia and biphobia, it's internalized prejudice. Um, and these things can be quite detrimental, particularly to an older person. When we think about how in 1967 it was only then that things were decriminalized, people have a lot of internalized like prejudice against themselves because they've been told a lot of their life that things are wrong. So what Foucault says is this sick picture here, we've got this panopticon and we've got the central watcher. So everybody in society is somebody who's in one of the cells as it goes around this circular panopticon. And society is also that central watcher. That central watcher is enforcing societal norms. And because we can be watched at any one time, but even if we, so then even if we're not being watched, we do regulate our behavior because somebody could be watching us. And this is an analogy of society and how we then start to internalize self-regulation, even when we're not being watched, because we could be watched and that fear of being watched. And what you've got to think also is other people who think they maybe are looking out for you might start regulating you too. So these are things. So we need to really start looking at targeting that central watcher. So if we can target and change the societal norms that that central watcher is enforcing on society, people can maybe be their authentic selves and stop regulating themselves as much. Um, another really interesting um, approach as well as a humanistic approach to it to be an LGBT. So Carl Rogers, who's one of, who again is one of the founding people of um, client-centered therapy and person-centered care. Um, he was a counselor and he quite often talked about three core conditions of an empathy, unconditional positive regard and congruence. So we're thinking about how we can really put ourselves in somebody's shoes to have empathy, really care for somebody and actually be truly caring and loving with that unconditional positive regard and being fair and genuine and anti-discriminatory really with that congruence and being genuine with what we're trying to do. Now, what Paul Rogers often says is that that unconditional positive regard is one of the most important things. And often some people have a conditional positive regard. So they have this conditional love. And when you think about a good example outside of LGBT is some families really want their kids to become a lawyer or a doctor. And then that kid then thinks that if they don't get good enough grades, they don't become that doctor or that lawyer, they don't think that their parent will love them. Now, part or love them as much. Part of this could be true, but part might, it might not be true, but that's the perceived feeling that that person has because they've got this condition to put on them. Um, and being LGBT is exactly the same. Quite often you think because of heteronormativity that, my parent or the people important to me will only love me if I'm straight or cisgendered. So you, and as I said, it's not always true, but you develop this kind of internalized complex in, within you. So when you are being cared for, when you access services, you need extra unconditional positive regard from the counselor, from the healthcare professional to actually make you feel comfortable and make you feel like this isn't conditional because society creates this whole idea of conditional positive regards due to heteronormativity. So again, as I said, just to put that point, healthcare professionals generally need to 
be far more affirming. So they need to go more than just being tolerating, but affirming to actually show that conditional positive regard because that person might not have had that previously, which is a human need. Um, another theory from Kitwood is his flower of love, which he says everybody needs love. Now, to have feel love, we need to feel comfortable. So we need to feel like we um, enjoy being where we are. We need to have our identity respected. So being LGBTQ, having that affirmed is important. Occupation. You might actually have a drag queen now in your care home. Now, the brilliant and doing meaningful activities for a postmaster and giving them letters to give out. But would you let a drag queen do a performance in your care home? You don't really see it as often. So we actually need to start thinking that maybe different occupations for LGBTQ folk might be there. And breaking down gender stereotypes about what men do and what women do. We need to think about that too. Inclusion. So everything would be swing back, making somebody feel included. And attachment. So having that loved one, having maybe that family of choice there, not necessarily biological family, and understanding that that attachment looks differently. Um, this was a quote that was given to me by somebody. Um, their loved one had passed away, unfortunately, at this time. But it really does hit home. Some of those things that we've been talking about is that when my other half was in a care home, the posters all had heterosexual couples on. He was scared to invite me for Valentine's Day as I might not fit in. So this is the power of just imagery and have. And actually, because you don't see yourself in that picture, you do not feel like you fit in. And you maybe fear negative views from that. So we've got other forms of microaggression. So it's not just LGBT. And I think that's really important to remember. So we've got indirect racism. We've got assumptions on abilities, we've got sexist beliefs, we've got ageism, and we've got assumptions based on religion, yours and the individual you care for. And I think a really important point here is the intersectionality of this, the fact that these can all happen at once. So if we think of somebody who is LGBT with dementia, you might have sexist beliefs there, you might have ageism, and you might have assumptions based on individual abilities. And sometimes these things all come together to create like double jeopardies of discrimination and make somebody even more vulnerable. So this isn't ranking oppression, which people quite often say. It's understanding the complexity of how this comes together and that some people are more vulnerable and maybe we do need to support people a little bit more. Um, so some ways that we can overcome microaggressions. So if we think about affirming imagery, um, and conversion, conversations with the healthcare staff. So think about that watcher in the panopticon. If we can have this affirming imagery, conversations with healthcare staff, talking about how okay it is to be LGBTQ+, having the rainbow flag up, having the trans flag, having loads of imagery, having leaflets about LGBT healthcare, particularly in general healthcare areas. What we're doing is we are creating that central watcher to say that it's a societal norm is it's okay to be LGBTQ+, so that person might not then regulate themselves and put themselves back in the closet and maybe be able to live their authentic self a bit more. Um, we've got to think about reminiscence and how it is fantastic, but it can bring up negative and um, painful memories. And that doesn't mean necessarily always not doing it, but having a bit more time to maybe support that person through those painful memories. 
Um, also thinking about that memory lane and actually its location to not having it the place where everybody has to walk up and down to them that's maybe not appropriate and person-centered. They can talk about pronouns the norm so quite often people struggle with pronouns only because it's not been the norm it's not people generally don't have an issue people just say oh I shouldn't have to do that and that really comes from just it not being the norm so let's make it the norm. Mm -hmm. Creating safe spaces um, so having maybe a room where a small room that's not just LGBT but a safe space where anybody can go to if they're feeling distressed for example that's not just their bedroom and um, hosting LGBTQ intergenerational projects so your local LGBT charities or organizations will probably love to this I know all the ones in the UK over here are starting to now go into care homes and actually really trying to bring this link and it is really fantastic because we know intergenerational work really does benefit older people um, providing dementia literature and support in LGBT settings so important is actually reaching out to these LGBT communities as well and saying actually what could be happening when people get older do they need legal power of attorney do people need to put an advanced care plan in place because the LGBT community we haven't got a clue we are not generally included in a lot of things so actually maybe getting solicitors to go in and talk getting leaflets out to the lgbt community is really essential to help them to plan for the future um and it just showed up this linked up working and you can benefit each other um you need to think about just become more aware of the needs um we need more training uh particularly around advanced care planning, last income attorney has said, but even um, healthcare professionals need that training, not just the LGBT people, to actually understand that this might look differently, this form might look differently into a heterosexual form, for example. As um, And also when caring for somebody who's LGBTQ with dementia and generally we need to just make sure that we're not enforcing our norms. So, for example, cisgendered people generally fit quite well onto the binary, which is absolutely fine. But some queer folk don't. Um, so not enforcing our norms onto somebody else is really important. And sometimes religion comes into that too. We also need to be self-critical about what we need to learn. If we don't know something, ask. And that is absolutely fine. And I think that's what we need. We need to try and be a bit more humble and actually know when we haven't got the knowledge on something and ask and try and find it out. And um, I thought this was a really fantastic infograph that I saw online and it says about how to be an ally. Now, this is actually based on um, race, but I think it fits within an ally with any minority or protected characteristic. When we think know your intent versus impact. So take responsibility for the impact you had. OK, yes, you might not um, have meant to upset someone, but if you've upset someone, own that you've upset someone to a certain degree let down your defenses and apologize and develop learn to be better so don't be over defensive because then that can come across even more oppressive and you're then not listening to somebody about what they want apologize move forward and educate yourself and that's what this says and i think that's a really important and really brilliant concise way of being a good ally to anybody really and then this, I think this is one of the last slides, is um, 
just some fantastic work that's going on here in the UK and hopefully in other countries similar stuff might start happening. We have a lot of um, prides in care homes. Um, we have a charity called Emling Doors London, which is an older LGBT charity, and they're brilliant. Um, we've had summits. We've had. I've worked with Aging with Pride in Birmingham. We've done a lot of intergenerational stuff. We've got charities that are doing a little bit of work around LGBT intervention. I've helped to develop here in the UK a um, qualification, a level two qualification that's been adopted by a lot of people in LGBT healthcare. So we've, it's really starting to move forward, but we've still got a long way to go and more training is definitely needed. Phil, we've got a couple of uh, screens here of references, which you were so gracious to provide those. So uh, for individuals that are watching this, um, you know, we're going to obviously have this online and you can you can go through a lot of these references, um, you know, really good information. Uh, Phil, I've got a, a few questions, if you don't mind. Yeah, well, first of question. First question, what can you do when another resident or patient is discriminatory to an LGBTQ person? Okay, then, yeah. So the key there is having that safe space ready. So it's bringing that person to that safe space, but making it clear that that person's not being punished because that's the difficulty. Unfortunately, if somebody, if the other person has got dementia, we know a little bit about neuroplasticity. Telling somebody off as such won't work. Somebody generally won't learn what behavior is right or wrong. They might be back in a time then where that was accepted behavior. Um, but what we need to do is protect that individual that is maybe receiving the discrimination. So bringing them to the safe space, um, but reassuring them that actually we're bringing you to a better place um, and just making it clear that that person isn't being um, punished. And that's a key thing because then that person won't feel like that societal norm is what's going on is right. So telling that person what she said was wrong, we do not believe that here. That goes against everything here. And we're just going to bring you to a better place. It's just making that central watching that um, panopticon show that actually it's fine to be LGBTQ. Okay, the questions are rolling in here, Phil. Uh, what do you, how do you address someone if you don't know how they identify? Um, I would suggest just staying gender neutral, but just ask. It's that being open and just asking, because we do that anyway in dementia. We're like, oh, how would you like me to call you? And we, we do it anyway, because sometimes the older generation, particularly here in the UK, don't like to be called their first name. Sometimes they like to be called their middle name. If they've been in the army, they like to use their rank within the army, and they like to be known as that. So we're quite we're quite good at doing that. So I think when we think about gender, just saying, "Oh, how would you like me to call you?" and that quite often then is important. But you could also start if somebody's a little bit less verbal, you could just be a little bit more gender neutral and vague, and kind of deduce where somebody is at and what they feel comfortable with. Very good. Um, let's see. Other question is, do you think LGBTQ affirming can reduce agitation? Um, yes, I do. I think if we think about that memory lane, um, that's quite often something. Previous memories and painful memories can quite often cause agitation. It can cause upset, distress, 
And then quite often people get put on antipsychotic medication because of that, whereas actually maybe it's just not a supportive environment. So things like that, making somebody feel valued, somebody feel like they're loved, quite often reduces agitation and can quite often make somebody feel less anxious. So, yeah, I definitely do. Okay. Well, good. Well, Phil, uh, lots of uh, really good information. Once again, I thank you for your time. So how can people find you? Because I'm sure that people want to reach out to you with some follow-up. So, yeah, um, on this front slide here, you can see you can find me on Twitter, um, on LinkedIn, and you've then got my country university email there, and you're more than welcome to email me with any questions or anything I can help with. Okay, good. And I know you and I have been talking about some type of a follow-up webinar, so um, we're going to keep in touch and let everybody know. Uh, we've had some really good you know, conversations about that, so I'm looking forward to seeing how we can continue to collaborate in that manner. So uh, once again, Phil, uh, really good information, and uh, thank you so much for your time today. I'm your host, Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging.